The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well this morning. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mars Hill, and we have been working through a series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And this is week six in our final week of that. Um, at Mars Hill, we usually teach through an entire book of the Bible at a time. And we take these little breaks in the summer. And we usually take one toward the end of the year where we kind of do a mini series on a specific topic. And so next week, we'll be back in the book of John. But today, we're going to finish up the series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Now, so far, we've looked through four of these, and we covered sola scriptura, and this is only in scripture is truth found. We talked about how the Bible is our ultimate source of truth. We've talked about sola gratia. So only by grace does God grant salvation, that it's a free gift given to us. We've talked about sola fide, only by faith. Can we receive salvation? Only with these empty hands of faith, I bring nothing to the table. I don't complete salvation. It's completed in God, but I come with empty hands of faith and receive that gift. We've talked about solus Christus. Only in Christ is salvation available. Only in him. And then today, soli deo gloria, only to God be the glory and salvation. And as we're going to talk about today, by extension, all things. So let's pray this morning. Let's ask God to be with us in this time that his spirit teach us before we get going. God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. I ask that today your word speak as we read and study through it. Lord, that your Holy Spirit illuminate things to us. God, that we're awakened to your glory. Lord, that we're spurred to recognize your glory and that we live in response to the glory of you alone. God, be with us today as we study your word. Remove me. Let you speak. God, use me today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, compared to the other four solas that we've talked about, this one doesn't seem like it would be one difficult to defend, right? Of, of course, if there's a God, he receives glory. Of course, if he's the source of salvation, he receives glory. And you may wonder why it's necessary to teach through this one and to learn this one. But the reason why it's completely necessary to us is because we as people like to do something that's terrible. <laughs> we like to glorify ourselves. It's something that we all kind of do, we're all guilty of in one way or another. And if you don't believe me that we're capable of glorifying ourselves, turn on a sports network and listen to some interviews. There are a few humble athletes out there, but most of them are like, man, I'm the greatest. Do you see me score 62 points last night? I'm the, I'm the greatest of all time. Boxers are notorious for this. <laughs> I'm the best it's ever been. And maybe you're not in the sports. Do me a favor. Go home and turn on one of the cable news networks or follow a politician on social media. Um, we will see that often politicians from both sides feel like they are the gift to humanity, that they're going to fix everything. <laughs> and their ideas are the best. All you have to do is do what they're asking you to do. See, we do those things. Now, now, we don't have the way to do that a lot of times. And so we find smaller ways, different ways to do it. 
for instance, how many crazy world records are there? Like ones that don't even make sense. I was looking up some world records and I was going to use a bunch of examples, but I got fixated on one. And so I only got one today because I couldn't get past it. Here's a dude that holds the world record for squirting liquid out of his eyeball. I want to know how you find out you can do that. Number one, is that like something at lunch? You're like, I wonder if I sniffed this up my nose, if I could, I don't even know how you do that. But yet he has recognition. He is getting glory for being able to squirt liquid out of his eyeball. Um, We have these crazy social media things. I'm going to challenge you to do something. I ate 47 ghost peppers. Yeah, you also don't have a lining to your stomach anymore. And and so we want to do things to bring recognition to ourselves. We want to do things to make us be more than we are. We want recognition for things. And when we look at where all of this started, it started in the garden. It started with original sin. Look at Genesis 3, 5. It says, and this is the words of the serpent, right? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And what's the thrust of this very first temptation, this very first sin? You'll be like God if you do this. You'll be wise. You'll know what he knows. You'll, you'll be able to distinguish good and evil. And you'll, this is the thrust of the temptation. That, that man was going to be greater than he and she were uh, so that they could be like God, to glory in themselves. Look at Genesis 11, verse 4. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. Watch this. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves least we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, this idea of bringing glory to ourselves happens over and over and over. It's a repeated pattern. When the Bible is very, very specific that it's not about bringing glory to ourselves, it's not about us. Genesis 1-1 tells us who it's all about, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who, who is this story about? Stories about God. What is all of history about? But God revealing himself to mankind, the, the story of redemption. It's all about him. And in this story, we have no place to receive glory. It's all about him. And that's why when we look at these five pillars of the Protestant Reformation, they all share the same word. Sola or alone. Why is the word alone so important? Because it indicates that there is none other that can share glory in this process of salvation. And when we look at the history of what's going on at this time, we see that during the time that the reformers were fighting against the church, what had happened is that the church had inserted themselves into the process of salvation and that man had inserted himself into the process of salvation. What I mean by that is that to enter into salvation, you had to go through sacraments. You, you receive salvation through performing the sacraments. 
And, and what was happening is that church leaders were weaponizing salvation. They used the process known as an interdict. And, and what that was is that they would say, we're going to withhold the sacraments from you until you get your leader to do what we want him to do. They weaponized salvation. Uh, of course the people are clamoring because they can't do this work that they were told brought salvation. Of course they're mad. And the reformers are saying, no, no, no. It is only by grace through faith in Christ alone can, can this happen. That's why their cry is alone. In this time also, if you made the Pope mad enough at you, he would literally, in his mind, tell you that you are condemned to all eternity in hell. He would excommunicate you. He, he could literally get so mad at you if you're a political leader or, or something that you've done that he could actually remove you from salvation like he had anything to do with it to begin with. But, but he could remove you and it's weaponizing salvation. It, it's making it a tool that is about God plus all of these things. It's about scripture plus tradition and the word of the Pope. It's about faith plus works. It's about the grace of God plus what I can do in return plus what I can do to get it. And that's the heart that these reformers are coming out of is that they're saying, no, no, it's all about God. Let's make the first thing first again. Let's make sure that everything is centered around him. And if you guys were here last week, you remember that that's actually what Jack preached on. You may say, wait a minute. No, it wasn't because he preached on rest and sat. That's exactly what it is. See, if we understand salvation properly, and if we understand it in the context of Scripture and what it is, we get to rest in salvation. We don't wake up every morning saying, man, I hope that I'm good enough today that by the end of the day, if I die, I'm saved. Oh, I hope I don't make too many mistakes. Oh, I, I, I hope that, that I can glorify uh, God enough that he finds me acceptable today. Man, I hope that I don't lose my salvation today. Man, I hope that I read enough passages today. Man, I hope that I confess enough sin today. I, 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 but in salvation, we get to say the work's done. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. And we do not work for our salvation. And because we do not work for our salvation... That means we can't share credit in it. No one can share credit in it. It's God's alone. Look at Romans 11, 33 through 36. This is Paul, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You see that exclamation point at the end? That's going to matter in just a minute. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Now, now, what that first verse is saying and what it means is that it's impossible to find the end of God. It's impossible to search him out. It's impossible to put limits on who God is and totally figure him out. He's just too big for that. And that's why that exclamation point is there. It's because Paul's like, holy cow, I, I, I got nothing anymore. He, he's all excited about this. 34 says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? That says God didn't consult with anyone in this plan. <laughs> he didn't come and ask us for our opinion. He's got this. 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's a lot of truth in those few verses that we can grab onto. 
But when we see what that is coming out of, it's so impactful. It's so rich. We don't have time to go through all of chapter 11 today, but I encourage you today at some point to go back and read um, Romans uh, chapter 11, the whole thing from start to finish. And what Paul's been talking about is he's talking about the role of Jews and Gentiles in salvation. He's talking about this gift of grace. And if you have time, go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. And we see that it's been mentioned over and over and over in the book of Romans. And Paul finally gets to this point that he's been explaining through the power of the Spirit, salvation and this plan of God. And it's like Paul just gets to a point that he just erupts and he's like, oh my goodness, look at this. This is astounding to me. God has done it. And he stands in sheer amazement of the work of God. One writer says it this way. Paul is caught up in this moment of reflection of the wondrous ways of God. And his words form the only logical conclusion to his discourse. For glory, the glory of God, is what life is all about. So he sees all these truths and he's just overwhelmed with the weight of them. He's overwhelmed with this truth that salvation is for the glory of God alone. That we are saved for God's glory and God's purpose. Now, how is salvation for the glory of God alone? How come we can't boast in this? How come someone else can't boast in this? Well, let's look and see what Scripture says. Look at Romans chapter 1. Remember, I told you through Romans, we've had this story being unfolded that Paul finally erupts in. It says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What does this verse say? What it's saying is that God has made himself plain to mankind. Look at the sun and the moon and the stars. Look at trees. Look at the animals. Look at us. Look at things that can't be explained. Like, like your heart being full of love for your spouse or your kids or your parents. That God has made it plain that all of this isn't by chance. But yet, what did humanity do? Humanity took the glory ascribed to God that we're supposed to look because he's made it plain to us and give him glory for all of these things. But what we did with our wretched sinful hands is we grabbed the glory, we removed it from God, and we placed it on ourselves. Now, you may say, Tommy, that's not what the Bible says. It talks about animals and created things and creatures. Watch this. If I get to make up my own God then I get to set the rules that he plays by. I get to sit how I worship him. So ultimately, if I'm worshiping a false God, who am I worshiping? My ideas. It's me. It's not anybody else. 
Never fool yourself. And neglecting God is about bringing glory to yourself because you reject his statutes and you want to find a different way. So what this verse tells us is that we removed glory from God, even though he's the only one that deserved it. Watch this, Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in this state, who's getting glory? In this state, we are. We're doing what our mind desires, what our heart wants, what we want. We're rejecting God. But God, one of the greatest phrases in all of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice that it says, while we were dead, he made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For grace, you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice what's happened here. We removed the glory from God, right? And we as humanity rejected God that had made himself plain. We attributed God's glory to things that didn't deserve God's glory. And while we're in that state dead, that is when God steps in in his grace and miraculously saves us. That is how salvation is for the glory of God because what it's doing is it's taking this messed up thing that we've done ascribing glory to something other than who deserves it and makes it right. It it, it restores us. It fixes it. And if we understand salvation properly, then we're going to be motivated to act on that understanding. And what is the result of this work of God? Look at this, Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is talking about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that where the verse ends? What's that last phrase? To the glory of God the Father. Scripture is explicit that salvation is for the glory of God, the completed work of God. It's for his glory. We need to recognize that. Now, if salvation is for the glory of God and we have entered into salvation, understand that our life now is for the glory of God. So, so what do we do in response to this? What, what do we do in response to the fact that we understand that God has miraculously saved us for his glory? What do we do? One writer says this, 
Those who have been astonished by God's plan of salvation and thus motivated to ascribe glory to him are properly situated to yield their bodies to him as living sacrifices, to render all proper obedience to human authority as instituted by God, and to live in peace with their brothers in the midst of imperfection and disagreement. So when we look this writer's uh, discourse on this, what this writer sees in this, we can see that a proper, uh, a proper end to ascribing glory to God in the way that he deserves in salvation is that we yield our lives to be living sacrifices to him. And that's the only logical response, right? If God glories himself in salvation, then we must glory him as those whom are saved. Now, this is not a works-based thing when I say we respond to to what God has done. Let, Let me give you a quick illustration. Every single illustration breaks down, okay? I've poked all sorts of holes in this one too, so so don't like throw things at me. Just I, I think you'll get where we're going with this. We're in somewhere USA. There are two houses. It's Christmas morning. Uh, one young child runs to the tree. Their parents are there, and, and, and she reaches out to get her gift, or he reaches out to get his gift. And the parents put the gift in the hands of the child. The child opens up this gift and he looks at it and says, oh my goodness, thank you so much. This is amazing. This is such a great gift. I love this gift. You're such great parents. Thank you. I'm so glad that you noticed this year that my grades went up. I've been working so hard in school, and this has been my best year ever. I'm so glad that you noticed that I've been making my bed, and I've been taking out the trash, and I even swept the floor that one time. I'm so glad that you noticed that I've been helping with the yard work and that I've been helping with all of these things. Thank you so much for this gift. Scenario one. Scenario two. Same story. Child walks down, puts out the hands. Parents put the gift in the hands. The child unwraps it and is so happy, but then overwhelmed with a little bit of sorrow. Why did you give this to me? I've been, re- I've been really bad this year. You, you, remember, you remember what I did to the car? Do you, my grades have been terrible. I haven't studied at all. I, I, I failed that class. Uh, you asked me to clean my room, and you've got to put on waders to get to my bed because we don't know what's on the floor. Why did you give this to me? I don't deserve it. And the parents say, because we love you and we want you to have it. Christmas Day goes on. They get to dinner. The table's set. Everyone sits down and eats, has a great meal. At the end, that child stands up and says, let me clear the table. Trash is full. Let me take out the trash. Notice in scenario one, The kid ascribed the gift to what he had done. He deserved it. Great grades. Did all the stuff he was supposed to do. In story two, there's nothing to deserve it. He's already got the gift. After dinner, he's not working to get the gift. He already has it. What is he doing? 
He's working out of a heart of response to the gift. That's who we are as believers. That's who we should be as believers. Understanding that work matters. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Works do matter, but they cannot be the source of your salvation. You can't hang your life on the hook of good works. You hang your life on the hook of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then your life begins to reflect what God has done in you once we understand what he's fully done what he has done for us. So proper understanding matters. We get really upset, those of us that are parents, when our kids just pitch an absolute fit. Um, I talk about Disney World a lot. Um, I don't get to go a lot, but I love Disney, okay? It's my thing. I'm sorry, judge me. It's okay. Um, but, but we get really mad at our kids when the whole world revolves around them. We look at them like, you're not the center of the world. Stop. And my daughter, God love her, um, and God work in us. Um, but we're in the middle of Disney World this last time we were able to go, and all she did was complain. I want this, and I want this, and I want that. You're at Disney World. And it's still asking for more stuff. And we tell our kids, the world does not revolve around you. But yet we as Christians so often, we look at the gospel and say, the gospel revolves around me. It's almost like we think that God is like this cosmic gift giver that is only there to serve our every whim. We, we feel like we're in the center and God is going around us saying, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? How, what would you like for me to do? You want me to change my eternal plans? We, think, we act like we think that way. But yet what salvation is, is that not that God is just the center, but God's everything. And our lives are to line up with his. And once we get that truth, it changes everything. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not share his glory with you. God will not share his glory with an idol. God will not share his glory with the things that you want to do with your life because our, res our response has to be only to God be the glory. You want to see a great picture of that? Revelation 4 gives us a great picture of this. It says, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We see even in the end, even in the end, the elders of heaven understand that they have nothing to contribute in the presence of the Lord. They don't deserve anything. They cast it all down before them. Why? Because God is worthy. They lay them down because they see who God is. They see what God has done. Scripture gives us another great example of this in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Notice in this passage right here, there's a connection being made between God's holiness and his glory. It it says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So what's happened in this story is that Isaiah becomes terribly aware of his situation in the presence of a holy God. He becomes completely aware that he doesn't deserve to be there, that he is out of place here. But watch what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What role did Isaiah have in his cleansing? He stood there and it happened. Uh, he, he, He was cleansed. He recognized who God was and said, oh, I'm a sinner. And then God responds in cleaning him. Look at this. Verse 8, here it is. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah was already cleansed. Isaiah had already received the greatest gift that he could ever receive. But when God said, who will go for us? Isaiah said, send me, not to earn his cleansing, but in response to the fact that he knew what had happened. He knew his state. He knew that he was messed up. He knew that when he saw God's glory, that he was undone. But yet God, in his mercy, cleansed him, and he responded with, send me. For me, I'm an illustration guy. You guys know that and have learned that about me as I've been able to be here a little more often this year. One of my favorites about salvation is from a place that you would not expect. Anybody ever heard of the comic Sinbad? Afros and bell bottoms from the 1980s. And what he does is he does a stand-up routine about his life growing up in the 1970s. And you may say, what does this have to do with salvation? I promise I'm getting there. Um, but what he says is he's talking about how people all of a sudden want dogs with papers. They want purebred dogs. And he says, I don't want a dog that's entitled. I don't want a dog with papers. I want a dog pound dog. I want a dog that knows that it was going to die before I came and got it. I want a dog that knows the state that it was in. I want a dog that knows that when I pulled it out of there, that it's going to be happy because it knows what it came from. I want a dog that when I come home in the afternoon, it's going to meet me at the door saying, hey, oh, that's what I want. I want a dog that knows that it was in desperation. Guys, God wants us to know that we were in desperation and that he pulled us out of it. And that we respond to that with joy and hope and peace. We respond to understanding the truth of salvation. We respond to all of who God is. That leads us to another question. How do we glorify God? How do we respond to that? The Bible makes it extremely easy, extremely practical, and impossible all at the exact same time. I love how the Bible does that. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, <clears throat> do it all to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 11 tells us that we should serve God so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Romans eleven thirty six 36 reminds us that 
From him and through him and back to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what this teaches us is that everything that we do should be for the glory of God. We have this thing in our minds so often that we want to separate things that are sacred and secular. We think that like Monday through Saturday is our secular time and on Sunday is our sacred time. And then my small group meets on Wednesday night. So I got an hour somewhere in the middle that I got to be sacred too. But when we look at what life is, if we look at it as a response to who God is, there's no such thing as a secular activity. What does that mean? That when you work, do it to the glory of God. Work with your hands, work hard, work to his glory, be the hardest worker. Why? Because you're not working for your employer. God has entrusted you with that job, and he's choosing in that moment to provide for you through it. So work for your real boss. Do it for the glory of God. When you get together with your friends and you go out to eat, are your conversations bringing God glory? Or the things that you do, bringing God glory. When you spend your money, are you bringing God glory? When you spend your time, are you bringing God glory? When you speak to your spouse or your kids, are you bringing God glory? Because that's it. It's in everything that we do that we are to bring God glory. And this is kind of a freeing thing. And you may think, no, Tommy, that just bound me up pretty good. No, this is a freeing thing when we see it in context. And the reason why is because the whole earth seems to be dealing with the same problem. We hear people all the time, what are we here for? What's our purpose? I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm alive. We have people suffering from depression, trying to find their purpose in life, and there doesn't seem to be an answer for that. But the answer is found squarely in the gospel. Your purpose is in the gospel. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a document that was written with 107 questions and hundreds of verses. To answer these questions, the very first question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of life? And you know, through searching scripture, what they found out the purpose of life was, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You want purpose for your life? There it is. Don't leave here saying you don't have purpose. You do. It's to glorify God. That's what we are called to do. The rest of creation doesn't seem to have a problem with it. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they're in a stasis of glorifying God. Uh, The animals, the trees, all of these things, they glorify God by existing. We're the only ones that seem to want to reject that purpose. Because of sin in our life, we push that purpose away. And like I said earlier, we remove glory from God when we're supposed to be returning it back to God. That is our purpose. Man's chief end is to, for, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what's that enjoy him forever? That's what Jack talked about last week. That See, I'm not waiting until I die to enjoy God forever. I, I love that I have peace and assuredness in my salvation. I, I love that if I make a mistake, I can come to God as a humble, broken son He's going to forgive me. He's not going to cast me away. He's not going to push me out. Why? Because I didn't didn't have anything to do with this to begin with. 
I, I, I can't lose that. I'm secured in Christ. John Piper says that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And so the question that we have to answer is, are we satisfied in God? Now, all of us need your reaction. <clears throat> yes, I am satisfied in God. This is one of those sacred moments, right? Yes, I'm supposed to be. Let me ask the question a better way to see if we can get a little better answer about this. What is it that you're most seeking in life? See, we want to say that we're satisfied in God, but yet the things that we chase after are not him. We chase after promotions. We, we chase after stuff. Man, when, when I retire, I'm going to get a yacht. Well, I hope you do. That'd be awesome. Call me up. I'll come ride with you. Um, I, I really do hope you do. But is that the goal of your life? Is that, is that it? <clears throat> or is it to glorify God in all of those things? And when you get that yacht, you can call up some of your pastors and let us come hang out. Uh, and, and so we need to understand <clears throat> that all of these secondary things can't be our goal, that our goal is in glorifying God. The reason that we do anything good is to glorify God. Look at Matthew 5, 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why do we do good works? To glorify God. See, that, that's how we point people to him. It's not because we have to. It's because we get to. We get to respond to what God has done. <clears throat> now, now, this truth hits on so many different levels. And, and, I, and I'm going to be transparent with you guys for a little while right now, um, which is terribly uncomfortable sometimes, especially when you're still kind of in the midst of something. Um, but, but I think that it's necessary um, right now. As, as we've gone through this study of the five solas, the Lord has taught me some things that I knew I could intellectually spout them back to you, but I didn't know, and I didn't know. And one of those is how rich the gift of the forgiveness of God is. See, all of us in this room probably struggle with the fact of, can God forgive me for our past? <clears throat> but not all of you in this room struggle with what I've struggled with. Can I forgive someone else? There's a specific person in my life that I struggle with. And I'm going to be honest. <clears throat> if you were to talk to me two years ago, and you were to ask me how I felt about this person, I would probably try to come up with all sorts of excuse, but I'm just going to be honest with you. I hated this person. <laughs> Jesus says that that's murder. This person did something to someone that I love more than I love anybody else on the face of this planet. And, 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 and terrible things and continues to find ways to just rip people apart. If the phone rings, and I think that it might be connected to this person at all for so long, I, I would look at the phone and, and, and just be mad already. When, when I saw them, I, I would be angry. On the outside, I'm smiling. Hey, how are things? But on the inside, I could not forgive them. How could I? They don't deserve it. 
They did terrible, terrible things. They haven't asked for it. This person will say that it's just the way that they are. Deal with it. It's that type of person. And they continue, continue, continue to bring sorrow to people from their actions. It it has been a rough, rough road. And through this study, what the Lord has revealed to me is that I go to him wanting forgiveness, but I look at other people and tell them they've got to earn my forgiveness. That's messed up, guys. We need to understand what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. And if we understand that, that helps us work through it. It was only right before Christmas that I've been able to sit in a room with this person and actually have some kind of gospel conversation. Why? Because before, I didn't care enough. Just being honest with you. And I'm working through this, and I'm going to tell you, I still, (laughs) I still get mad at times, but understand that what God's doing is that he's shaping me through this, and I'm learning what forgiveness is. I'm learning what the gift of forgiveness is, and I'm learning that I must live for God's glory. And if my works portray the glory of God, how perverted is the glory of God? If I'm to portray it, if I look at somebody and say, I can't forgive you, that's so messed up. And so God has convicted me of this and is working in me in this. And this series on the solas has been absolutely transformational for me. Because I understand what I have been given and what I must give in return. Now, now you may say that, that you don't have that struggle. And I hope that you don't because it's a hard one to get through. But so many other things are too. How do you talk to your spouse? Are you mean and bitey and have to always be right and be oppressive? How do you talk to your kids? How do you work? How do you interact with your friends? How do you exist as a person? Because if it's not for the glory of God, then what we have to do is get a hold to this truth that if salvation is for God's glory, then we must glorify him and we must begin to line up with the word. And so understand that this is transformational if we grab hold to it and realize it. Now, how do we begin to do this? How do we begin to to be in a place where God can convict us of these things, where God can move us to a place where we live for his glory? There's a few very practical things. And number one is that we study scripture. That's how we know God. That's how God reveals himself to us. If truth is found in scripture alone, and we say we're seeking truth, but we neglect the Bible, something's going on there. Read scripture. Allow the spirit to speak to you through scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind through scripture. The second is through prayer. And by prayer, I don't mean God revolves around me prayer. I mean, I revolve around God prayer. I abide in God prayer. Pray that God transforms your attitude, transforms your action, that God draws you, that God changes you, that God gets you on his agenda instead of you trying to convince God somehow to get on yours. That doesn't mean that you come neglecting requests and petitions because the Bible says to do that. Pray for those that are sick. Pray for those in need. Pray that God lead and guide and direct you, but then say, God, let your will be mine. Transform me. Pray and pray correctly. And lastly, one of the most simple, 
is give thanks in all circumstances. When we give thanks to God, we're acknowledging his sovereignty. This may sound cheesy to you, but I promise you it's not. Thank God when you sit down to eat an ice cream cone. Thank God when you get to see a beautiful sunset. Thank God for a good night's rest. With my kids and I, on the way to school, uh, every single morning we take time in the car and pray on the way there. I know I'm a terrible parent. I don't wake up early enough to do it at home. And so we're in the car driving. We got a 25-minute drive, so we got time. And one of the things that always comes up is, God, thank you so much for the roof over our head, the bed that we got to sleep in, clothes on our back, good food to eat, fresh water to drink. It's all from you. But God, we want to let you know that if you would have just stopped at salvation, that would be plenty to glorify you forever. So we thank you most for that. And that comes out of our lips in one way, shape, or form every morning. And you know how we close our day? God, thank you for providing us this day these things. We come with a thankful heart because it acknowledges God's sovereignty. And we understand that he is in control. And we give all glory and thanksgiving back to him. So how would I sum up this message? How would I sum up this whole thing? There's two ways. The first is a little long and the next one's pretty short. But here's the first one. There is therefore an intimate connection between our salvation and God's glory. The two are not in competition. As stated in the first question of the Westminster Assembly Larger Catechism, man's chief end and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. But due to the fall and the sin, man does not willingly glorify God or even enjoy him. Salvation restores both of these elements. God receives the glory for saving such wretches as us, and we begin to delight in the sovereign grace of God. If that was a little too long for you, I'll give you a shorter one. <clears throat> to God be the glory, great things he hath done. That's how we sum this up. It's all for the glory of God. It's all for recognizing that salvation is a gift from him. And we just live in response to it. We rehearse the gospel in our lives. And I know that sounds cheesy, but I promise you it's not. What I mean by that is that we preach the gospel over and over to ourselves that I was a wretch that deserved nothing. And God pulled me out of my cage of sin and has restored me to life. And guys, if we live with that in our mind then we're going to have a heart that's thankful and glorifies him. Now, this morning, um, we're going to take a moment and we're going to remember this. We're, we're going to take a moment and, and we're going to have a, a time where we're going to all participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, when I say all, understand that I'm talking about believers. Um, this is not for you if you are not a, a believer, if you're not a Christian. This is for those of us that have experienced new life in Christ, and we do this in remembrance of him. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant with my blood. Do this whenever you drink it.
For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as our elders come up to um, begin to serve you, don't be quick to move. Take this moment and reflect on the message. Reflect on the glory of God. Reflect on what was completed on the cross through Christ. Ask the Lord to reveal to you any unconfessed sin that you may have. Deal with God so that you can say that you came and took this in a worthy manner, one that has submitted to the Lord. And as we do this and we remember the great gift that we've been given of salvation, let us remember it's all for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day in your word. Lord, I thank you that salvation is not at all dependent on me or my works. Therefore, I, I, can't, I can't even mess it up enough. But Lord, I thank you that you show us such an amazing gift that when we see the gift for what it is, that we can't help but to respond in joy and peace. Lord, I pray that today your word is spoken and that those of us following you can leave in both sorrow and joy. We can leave in sorrow, understanding that we don't deserve the gift, but joy, understanding that we don't deserve the gift. That we have hope and peace and joy in you. Lord, as we take this, we do this in remembrance of you. Lord, let our hearts be set on you. Let it not be just something we do. Let our whole focus be on the completed work of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.